is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. We live every day with innovation in our lives. It's in our pocket. It's how we communicate. It's how we interact with one another. It's even how we do business. But what happens if we focus that innovation on disasters? What does the intersection of innovation and disasters look like? What if we thought outside of the box when it came to innovation? Maybe we could actually stop disasters from ever happening in the first place by manipulating weather. This is a confronting idea that we're going to unpack here today. Andrew, who do we have on the show today? Josh, today on the show, we're speaking with Associate Professor Rosalind Princely, Head of Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University in Canberra. Rosalind has a wealth of experience in government and private industry, including as the Chair of Bioenergy Australia and Principal Strategic Consultant with Sinclair Knight Mers. When the Black Summer bushfires choked Canberra with a summer of smoke, Rosalind was motivated to think differently about solutions to minimise the impact of disasters. We'll be asking about what can be done to manipulate the weather, prevent ignitions from causing bushfires and reduce flooding. Let's have this out-of-the-box conversation with Rosalind Princely here on Me, Myself and Disaster. We're here in Canberra today at the Australian National University with Rosalind Princely. Welcome to the show. Hi. So Rosalind, as Head of Disaster Solutions for ANU, what does that job involve? Can you take us through what the actual Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions Institute here at ANU does? Yeah, so I'm the Head of Disaster Solutions in the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. And essentially the goal of the whole institute is to advance innovative solutions to address climate, energy and disaster um, issues. The reason that we've taken this approach to develop novel solutions is because the solutions we have just aren't keeping up Mm. climate change. And what we've been doing in particular to respond to disasters is just not working anymore. And so we need to do something different. And our institute aims to develop transformational disaster solutions, bringing together the expertise of our world-leading ANU researchers in partnership with stakeholders and using research to understand what needs to be done so we leave nothing to chance. Mm. So just picking up on that thread that, you know, at the end of the day, we're kind of seeing this trend where, um, you know, the the disasters that we have are kind of outstripping the solutions or they're, try- they're starting to get ahead of us in terms of what we're doing in the industry. So from where you sit and, um, you know, the research is showing, what are we heading for? What does the next 5, 10, you know, 15 years look like? What, what is in front of us? Yeah, so... Um as we all know, and we just have to look at the news every day or look outside our door, um, the number of extreme events is increasing worldwide, even if we stop carbon emissions today. Mm. Uh, according to the World Meteorological Organisation, in the last 50 years, more than 11,000 reported disasters were attributed solely to weather, climate or water hazards globally, with just over 2 million deaths and $3.64 trillion in losses. So a disaster occurred every day in on average over the last 50 years. Um, The only thing is that the number of disasters has increased by a factor of five Mm. over the 50-year period driven by climate change, more extreme weather. 
and improved reporting. Um, and the number of weather, climate and water extremes are expected to become much more frequent and much more severe in many parts of the world as a result of climate change. In fact, what I'm really worried about is if we continue on this trajectory, it's predicted that by 2030, which is not that far away, yeah. the world will face some 560 disasters per year and an additional 100.7 million people could be pushed into poverty by the impacts of climate change and disasters. So um, it's a bit of a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting too, is it, because I look at that and think, well, like we'll be fine because we've got money, we've got sort of resource to help ourselves, but it's those who are on the edges of vulnerability, isn't it, that those who are going to hit poverty will not be people like or most of us in Australia. There will be some, but it won't be most of us. Uh, it'll be those in those countries that can least afford this to happen. Yeah, so um, I guess one of the um, worst things is it does seem to affect the people um, who have the least the most. Mm. Um, however, um, set set your mind back to those bushfires in 2019, 2020, and I don't think any of us enjoyed not being able to breathe when we went outside. Mm. Yeah. So it affects everyone, and, um, and I think it's only going to affect everyone more. And I was speaking to someone recently who was um, – uh, working with the Red Cross in Syria, I think it was, and they were looking at the disasters caused by humans. Yeah. Um, and said, look, you know, that's going to be Australia, the not too distant future, but it won't be disasters caused by humans, it will be disasters caused by natural hazards. Yeah. And so we do need to take this really seriously, even for ourselves, I think, even though it is worse for those vulnerable people, I think even for the normal everyday Australian, we need to be worried. Yeah. So with disasters, we often, our approach at the moment is we look at when I mean, there's a PPR cycle of starting with that prevention and preparing for disasters. And we often say, well, storm season's coming or the bushfire season's coming and there's plenty we can do to prepare our homes, clean our gutters out, move away from uh, large forested areas, uh, those types of things. But your work here takes that a step further. We're going back to that real prevention and mitigation stage. What what sort of things have you come up with and how do we reshape that risk to get to that point of, well, how do we rethink about this differently? Yeah, so um, we do tend to focus on exposure and vulnerability, thinking that there's just not much we can do about yeah. that hazard itself. And it tends to, have, tends to tend to have gone out of fashion a bit to think about how we might prevent the disaster. But if we could devise one, a transformational solution should stop disasters in their tracks. And of course, this would then prevent the deaths and destructions that we're concerned about. It would also prevent the environmental damage, say, from when we have those catastrophic type bushfires and we end up with doubling our greenhouse gas emissions mm. into the air, with completely um, burning an area the size of the country of, say, Belgium or Bangladesh, um, killing millions and millions of animals, or billions, I should say. Mm. So we need to think about that as well, not just about the people in their infrastructure, but about our planet and the environment and everywhere, every other being that lives on the planet. So um, I think we do need to think about wherever we can. The first thing we should think about is can we stop this disaster? Yeah. Because if we can, we'll prevent a lot of death and destruction. And then um, once we um, do that, I think we can start to then think about, well, um, if we can't stop the disaster, what, sh what can we do to actually really lessen its impact? Yeah. And if we can't do that, then, you know, in the case of something like an earthquake, how can we give people a lot more warning to get out of the way so at least we're saving more people's lives? Yeah. 
yeah, so I think we just need to change the way we think. Yeah, so, so to me, and obviously as many listeners know, Andrew and I obviously have an engineering background and, and you know, you talk we talk a lot about in the engineering world and when we look at risk, you know, the classic hierarchy of risk controls and, and it's really funny and I think we were talking about this when we were planning for this episode is that, you know, as an engineer or in that kind of risk uh, field, one of the first steps you look at and the most plausible step is to eliminate the risk. But it's really funny here in the disaster kind of context and space, we go straight to more about, oh, well, um, you know, elimination doesn't really come into our mind. And I think this is where this is going to be an interesting conversation today. ANU is proposing some pretty out there ideas. Can you take us through um, this notion of eliminating risk? If we applied this notion of eliminating a risk, what does that look like? So take us through, I think some of the things you've been looking at is how could you suppress storms and um, changing cyclone tracks and and things with clouds. Can you help us understand what you're looking at in that space? Okay, so I'll just take you back to where I started with this. Um, And that was the 2019-20 bushfires, Mm. which were pretty disastrous. And Mm. I kind of walked out of the house every day and thought, I can't breathe. This is crazy. Here we are, like in the 21st century. And I can't breathe when I go outside in what's probably one of the richest countries in the world. We're doing something wrong. What are we doing wrong here? Um, And so it turns out that most of those fires or most of that area burnt and that smoke that we couldn't breathe in and all of those um, destroyed parts of the um, country were all due to the fact that lightning strikes hit bushland that was very remote. Mm. And so when it hit, um, no one saw it. And that fire ignited, you couldn't see it. And by the time people could see it, it was so big that they probably wouldn't have been able to put it out, even if they could get there straight away. And the problem is that once they saw it, how were they going to get there straight away to put it out? And so they just grew and grew and grew. And we ended up with those really, really catastrophic bushfires because the conditions were so bad for bushfires. So I thought, we just need to think about this differently. We need to think we cannot let any of these ignitions take off because Mm. the minute they take off, it doesn't take very long for them to become completely uncontrollable and so um, we put together um, people from across ANU from all different disciplines to look at would it be possible to see these fires as soon as they ignited and I spoke to people in um, in control rooms for bushfires and that sort of thing and said how early would you need to detect it so that you could actually find it and put it out straight away and so we came up with a very ambitious goal of detecting it within a minute of ignition and putting it out five minutes after that yeah that's definitely ambitious that's hugely ambitious ambitious. (laughs) super ambitious but you know someone had this ambitious idea of sending a satellite up to bash into a meteor so it wouldn't bang into the earth and they seem to have succeeded in doing that so I think someone sent people to the moon many, many years ago before we have all the technology we have today. So things are possible if you set your mind to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you put the right resources into them and bring the right people to think about them. And so I think we need to do this because we can't keep having these bushfires. There's not just us, but it's yeah. the rest of the world. There's, we're expecting to have twice as many in the next 50 years. And so that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've now got um, people from all different disciplines working together to look at how we can detect a bushfire within a minute, funded by um, Optus and ANU. And so um, at the moment we can't detect a bushfire within a minute, but, you know, we're getting closer. And if we don't look at all these different technologies for detection, we never will be able to. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what are some of those in terms of trying to detect? Yeah. What are some of those methods that you're looking at? Like, sure. are we looking at satellites? Yeah. Are we? Yeah, yeah. What are some of the solutions that you're trying yeah. to look at that are that are out of the box here? Yeah. So the first thing we came up with actually would be great if there was a geostationary satellite. Like you'd have like this eye in the sky and it would be permanently looking over the whole of Australia, yeah. looking for these ignitions. And we still have that idea, but we haven't developed that idea as far as we'd like to, just because it is very expensive. Um, but we are we've talked to Optus about it, and there are other groups now looking. Looking at that, yeah. So um, there's that. That's the first one. Um, the second one is so these lightning strikes. Um, they, um, if, if you think about a lightning storm, you have loads and loads of lightning strikes all at mm. once, like thousands and thousands. So even if you wanted to chase them, yeah. Say with a drone, which is what we want to do. We want to chase the lightning strikes with drones and find out which ones are causing the ignitions. It's hard to chase thousands. Yeah. But if out of those thousands you knew that only fifty were going to cause lightning strikes because of the type of light cause ignition, sorry, because yeah. of the type of lightning strike yeah. that they are, um, then you could go to those fifty pretty quickly, right? Yeah. So we have now partnered with a company called FNN in the US. It's a startup out of the University of Florida who are lightning experts, and they've developed these new detectors that can actually detect these long continuing current lightning strikes yep. that are the ones that actually cause the ignitions. Wow. And so there's a small number of them out of all those lightning strikes, there's a very small number. So if you have a dry lightning storm, um, which are the ones where you'd expect to get fires igniting, not in when there's a lot of rain, obviously, um, you can actually detect those long continuing current strikes. And we have a trial now in the ACT partnering with this company to detect those long continuing current lightning strikes. And we also have um, Andrew Tridgell, who yep. Tridge, who's one of our rec- uh, honorary researchers actually, um, who's trialling these drones, these carbonics drones, um, which can fly much faster than the drones you think about, like mostly people think about those drones that have the little propellers with yep. the, yeah, that take the photos. No, these ones look more like planes mm-hmm. and they're very fast. They can fly around about up to 100 kilometres per hour and they have a long range. They can go for about six to eight hours. Um, so the idea is you, if you were predicting a lightning um, storm in a particular area, you'd get the drone out there before the storm and then you'd have the drone there chasing the particular lightning strikes that yeah. cause the ignition and if it caused an ignition, the drone would let the next stage of the process know is the extinguishing agent um, to put that fire out. So, Jeez. so the drone so actually that, carries some sort of extinguishing agent and just drops uh, it and the fire well, goes no, out? No, at the or? moment we don't have that. So um, at the moment what we have is um, the drone doesn't extinguish, the drone's a detector drone. It's a scout, we call okay. it like a scout drone Yeah. Um, and it lets the person the the agent with the extinguishing agent no we have we are thinking about whether that could work as well it's a long story but we can come back to that (laughs) um but at the moment we don't have drones that are that can carry enough weight of water to put um the fire out that can go as fast and have as long a range i think it's a matter of time before we do have those but at the moment we don't have those i have to think also that in the context of bushfires it's quite um it's quite expensive to get, like, say, the military-type drones yep. that we have. We're, we're restricting ourselves to drones that we think would be affordable for the RFSA. Yeah. What's interesting, I know um, as a Canberra resident, a lot of the suburbs in northern Canberra and Gungahlin around Franklin have wing, which you can get food delivered by oh, a yeah. drone, takes off, and there you go, there's your, <laughs> there's your empanadas or your burger coming out of the sky and landing. This is like How often did you use this yeah. service, Andrew? <laughs> not, for, not for today's podcast. Um, but it's pretty good. Like The, the drones are now actually offering 
reaping more benefits and yep. it's doing Uber food deliveries. We're now actually seeing this in action and yep. wow. But, but I think part of the issue is, is that, um, and I think, Rosalind, this is where I really like what Disaster Solutions are doing at ANU is that, you know, the trajectory of what we're seeing technology yep. do, it's exponential. Yep. And I think, yeah, you think about this problem now and today you go, oh, yeah, it's probably not going to work. But who's to say in a week or a month or a year there's going to be a huge breakthrough like we've seen in the past, you know, five years, you know, what could possibly yep. be um, you know, able to do in the next, like uh, we could be literally a week off. And I mean, I think one of the things we were talking about as well is um, many people would have seen, uh, uh, you know, being environmentally friendly and the reduction of using of fireworks and using drone shows now where you can coordinate thousands of drones in one sky. You know, surely that could be something that the ANU could be looking at. Yeah. So we've actually talked quite a lot about drone, sw- drone swarms. There is one issue that's probably worth raising. Um, so everything's not easy. Yeah. So we have a thing called... <laughs> called CASA, yeah. which essentially regulates the air. Yeah. And um, to actually even get one drone to fly out of line of sight, we need to go through a whole process with them, yeah. which we're going through at the moment. So we need to get that acceptable first. Once that's acceptable, then we can start thinking about more than one drone and working with them. But I think ultimately it's got to be a good way to go, yeah. but maybe not quite yet just till we get this regulatory um, hurdle overcome. Yeah. Now, the work you're doing here in Canberra, is that being done overseas somewhere before? Is this the first area where they're using drones to scope out fires and lightning? What's happening in the rest of the world on this? No one else is doing that particular one in the rest of the world. The one that we are doing that is similar to what's being done in the rest of the world are these things called cameras on towers. So if you imagine those like towers where they look out for fires and they have people sitting up the top of these very tall towers, it's quite um, exhausting and dangerous and they could fall asleep and whatever. So the idea is to have... um, a video camera that takes um, continuous video with also infrared um, and tries to detect the f- generally the smoke that way. Um, so um, the ba- main problem with those worldwide is false positives. So okay. something that looks like smoke could also be a cloud, could also be dust. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you get AI, which is how these things work, mm. how do you get AI to differentiate between smoke, dust, clouds, and make sure that they don't come up with lots of false positives and send the fire brigade rushing off to every single cloud of dust that a car might have wished up. So, And our understanding, that's like a machine learning thing, isn't yeah. it? Like as that machine yeah. learns through AI, it should get better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. but you need the right algorithms. So we're very fortunate at ANU to have some amazing researchers that have come up with some algorithms that we think are world-beating in this respect. Yeah. So hopefully um, we will be able to achieve that cameras on towers approach um, yeah. as well as the drone approach. So what we think is there's never going to be just one solution for detection if you want to detect really quickly. Mm-hmm. So even if you had like that eye in the sky, that sort of holy grail of an eye in the sky detector on a satellite, even if you had that, um, you know, on a very cloudy day, you wouldn't be able to, it would be unlikely it would see a very small fire, even if it could when it wasn't a cloudy day. Yeah. Um, And so you need to have something else there as a backup so that you have like a lot of redundancy in your system so you don't miss any of those small fires. Yeah. I think is it. I mean, we're almost like in my mind. I'm going to like Blade Runner scenes. Like we're we're, we're really talking about the future here now. Um, but with that, I think some people may feel uncomfortable, or you know, there's as people know, we've had um, you know, we've unpacked conspiracy theories and disasters on this show before as well. Um, how do you manage some of those complexities? And, and probably against the context, one of your solutions you're looking at is in terms of cloud seeding around oh, yeah. hailstorms and suppressing hailstorms. Yeah. 
what are you doing in that space? Because that's a really out there. And we know that there have been communities and there's obviously been a hot topic around cloud seeding and community perceptions around what that means. And can you take us through, yeah, what you're doing there and then yep. what you think you need to be doing in terms of managing some of those community perceptions and, and conspiracy theories? Yeah. So first of all, um, we're actually not doing any research at the moment specifically on hailstorms. Um, and in fact, what really surprised me is, I don't know, you probably remember that hailstorm in um, January 2020 when those giant hailstones fell. Um, yes. Well, ever since then I have actually been looking around to see if there's any way to stop that happening because our house didn't like it very much and I know a lot of people's cars didn't either. There's still cars driving around Canberra with hail dents there in are. them. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, so it was really terrible and they do inflict, inflict very serious financial losses. Um, and so um, what can we do about that? So I think that most of your listeners, and I certainly wasn't aware, that hail suppression efforts started in the 18th century with the invention of these hail cannons, which are shockwave generators to disrupt hailstone formation. Um, and so um, this became a real craze at that time. And a lot of countries, I think it's around 50 countries, are now um, involved in controlling their weather, like using cloud seeding either for rain or for hail suppression. Um, and these shockwave cannons are still being used in some countries as well with the belief that they would work. So they're in use now, are they, the hail cannons? Um, the most recent I could find is um, in 2018, the hail cannons were used at a plant in Mexico to present cars, pr- protect cars from hail. Um, and like there are some countries like Bulgaria, which is one of the most hail stormy countries in Europe, and they have a hail combat execution agency, um, which has seven radars for weather monitoring on Bulgarian territory, and they provide hail control missile protection, which is through cloud seeding in the north central and northeastern districts. Um, but the World Meteorological Organization has reported in 2017 that these weather modification programs, including suppressing crop damaging hail and increasing rain and snowfall, were underway in more than 50 countries. Whoa. So we do cloud seeding here for um, you know snow and rain, in the, so we have quite a reasonably advanced um, programming cloud seeding research, but we don't have something like what they have. Um, say in China, where they have they employ thirty five thousand people in their weather modification service. Whoa, that's <laughs> a big investment. Yeah. So uh, and it covers like um, um, an area uh, one and a half sizes times the size of India. So we are talking here um, about a serious effort in weather modification in China. They take it very very seriously. They also do a huge amount of research in this area, coming up with all sorts of new approaches. Um, um, they use it regularly for things like clearing Beijing smog and that sort of stuff, like before the Olympics. So where this opens up a fascinating discussion, right? So when we're starting to talk technology, we're starting to talk about altering weather. For you as a researcher, and obviously Andrew and I have undertaken theses and done academic work ourselves, there's always this question of ethics. Where does that come in oh, here? Yeah. Like in terms of ethics of if we're going to manipulate weather, obviously, yeah, protection of life and and we need to be thinking about that. But what's your thoughts in terms of if we're manipulating weather and the ethics of that and the research and how that all comes together? Yeah, so before we do say anything else about that, what I always think about this is we are manipulating the world's climate every day, every one of us on mm. a daily basis. Yeah, We have caused all this extra carbon dioxide to go into the atmosphere that's yep. heating the earth. We're, we're 
we've um, produced this hole in the ozone layer. We are modifying the weather and the climate all the time to the detriment of the whole world, mm. and yet we seem not to be able to stop. So what we're talking about here are very targeted approaches to try to reduce disasters, to try and stop making things even worse than they're being mm. made already. Mm. Um, having said that, yes, you're right, there are all these conspiracy theories around, you know, like, um, you know, the minute you try and um, stop the hail and you cause a flood in a nearby place, they'll go, oh, that was all your fault, you caused this flood because you stopped the hail and you turned it into rain where I live and now I've got this flood yeah. and who's liable for that? Or why didn't you stop the hail in yeah. the place where I am and you stopped it over there but not over here and now yeah. you're liable, it's your fault and I want you to pay for all that hail damage that was caused. So yeah. it is quite a tricky area. And yeah. it does, if we are going to go into this weather modification, I think we need to put a lot of effort into thinking about the ethics and the governance. Mm. Like, what is the governance for it? And yeah. when should we make a decision to intervene in, say, a hailstorm? Like, and where? Yeah. And we need to think about that because if we're going to do it, we need to think about the whole framework around it. And, and that's where, like, even social contracts come into it. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I was going to ask, what what is, like, we're talking about these ideas and it sounds like some countries are very invested, but what is actually possible? So we've got hail cannons and it sounds like they have sort of mixed results. Cloud seeding, I was in a flood recently and I uh, got into a taxi and the guy complained at me saying, oh, it's the government's fault because they've put up, I've seen the crop <laughs> dusting planes flying around, I've seen them cloud seeding, they cause this flood. Um what what is actually possible? I mean, is it possible for us to go cloud seed somewhere and make it rain on on demand? Like, can we make more snow for for Jindabai in the snowfields? Can we do that? Is that possible? And what, yeah, what's I think the it is possible. Like? Wow. Um, like, there's still a little bit of uncertainty around exactly how cloud seeding, say, with silver iodide, works. Um, but it does seem to be that it does work. So there needs to be some. And there's some theories around how it works, but. Whether they're the right theories, no mm. one's 100% sure, but it does seem to work and there does seem to be evidence that it works. And certainly a lot of countries like China and Bulgaria and the US are investing and, um, you know, the um, countries in the Arab states where they really don't have much water, they're putting a huge amount of effort into researching different approaches, to even new ty- types of um, particles for cloud seeding with. So um, so I think I think it's funny, my daughter said to me the other day, you know, mum, I just watched this podcast, listened to this podcast and it was all about how you can't do anything about conspiracy theories. Like, you just can't. Yeah, like, they people, will eventuate anyway. Yeah, and, and once they've eventuated, people are convinced that they're true and no matter how much you show them evidence that they're wrong, they just will find some reason to mm. reject your evidence. And so I think those people are always going to be a problem like they were with the COVID vaccines, um, like they are with, um, you know, even there's still people who believe the earth is flat. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's always going to be people like that. But in the end, if we can reliably stop hailstorms or cyclones um, without too many side effects that are um, that we don't want, um, then we should look at the best way to do that and have the right frameworks in place to make sure that we do the most good and the least damage. We'll come back to cyclones in a moment. But I just wanted to ask, in terms of that cloud seeding, is there an opposite to that? So Josh and I have spent a fair bit of time over in Asia recently, and a lot of those countries are quite vulnerable to flash flooding. Say the weather forecast was really torrential rain in the tropics for the next two weeks. Could we put a plane up and crop dust or whatever they do, cloud seeds, to kind of reverse it and stop the rain hitting or do something to, to make the rain hit somewhere else over the ocean? 
Um, you could potentially, I think, and I'm not an expert on this 100%, but I, I understand that you could actually make it rain earlier, like you could get the clouds to drop their rain in a different place. Okay. I don't think you could stop it falling altogether. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine how you would do that. Well, there's so much to learn about this, and I think it'd be great to get over to China as well and learn about what they're doing over there would be fascinating. So, But Australia, we've had um, plenty of cyclones each season. We've had Cyclone Ilsa recently in Western Australia and came through at an almighty force. What were you um, thinking around cyclones? What could you do in that space to sort of prevent or minimise impact or change the track of the cyclone? Is there something happening in that space? Yeah, we're certainly looking at that. And so everyone will know that when we think about cyclones, we think that all we can, we can really do is run to a cyclone shelter and or make your house stronger, that sort of thing. Mm. But um, again, like, could we stop the cyclone? Like if we could stop that cyclone or divert it away from where it's going to hit infrastructure and people and other things we think are valuable or could we do that yeah so we've um recently it's hopefully going to be published soon um published a big review of all the different ways that you might stop cyclones so again we've got the cloud seeding approach which looks to be quite promising um all sort of atmospheric aerosol injections do anyway um we've got um, people have tried pipes to inject cool water into cyclone hotspots. So tropical cyclones tend to require sea surface, sea surface temperatures above 26.5 to 35 degrees centigrade to form. And at higher temperatures, there's more water evaporation, which is a key energy input into cyclone formation. So if we lower those sea surface temperatures, we get less evaporation and reduction in cyclone intensity or genesis. So that's something that has been tried, but we have a review that we don't think it's really feasible. We think it would be way too expensive and possibly wouldn't be too successful. It might have some pretty bad side effects, but it's a nice idea. So is that giant pipes in the ocean or where yeah. the pipes go? You put massive pipes out yeah. in the ocean and... Yeah, and then you pump the cool expensive. water up, right? And it have to be over a huge area. So, yeah, I, just, I think it's a good idea, but also it could have quite bad side effects um, of, you know, rain where you don't want it or no rain where you do want it and all that sort of stuff. So... Um, and then there's injecting particles into the upper atmosphere, um, which would heat up the upper atmosphere and cool down the lower atmosphere. That's possible. But we think um, atmospheric aerosol injections are worth looking at, and we're actually looking at them at the moment. So um, we have um, this amazing um, researcher who um, was the head of um, meteorology in Vietnam for a long time. She's now come here and done a PhD on cyclones and we have her working with some of the world experts on um, aerosol injections and how they inter interact with the atmosphere, working with her from over the world to try to look at how, what is the best way to interfere with a cyclone. And so it involves at the start a lot of modelling, so trying to understand how the cyclone works and where's the best place and time to intervene and what sort of effect you could have by intervening. But we think we've made a huge amount of headway in a short time. And um, again, there's that issue of, well, if we are successful, we really need that governance framework to be right. So. so you could potentially, like, hear a cyclone coming, Queensland, Western Australia, Northern Territories on notice. We could then deploy some sort of plane, pump out a tonne of gas into whatever, and then the cyclone either deteriorates or changes track into a different direction. Something like that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so well, not to gas, me, but aerosols, yeah. Yeah, and to me, like, I think it's very common for Andrew and I, because, like... <laughs> 
I think sometimes when you think manipulating the weather, it's really hard to kind of wrap your mind around that. It's like wind, you know, describe wind. What is it? Well, you can't physically see it, but it just happens. And But I think, you know, from our engineering kind of background, it's going, well, you're really going back to first principles, going what are the mechanics that actually make these things happen? And then what can we manipulate to, to actually change the mechanics of that moving forward? Is that really kind of the premise of what you guys are looking at here? hundred percent. So yeah. um, it is really hard to understand how cyclones start and there's a huge amount of research across the world and it's been going for years looking at how cyclones start and how they form um, and we need to work out we need to understand that really well. It's mm. like you wouldn't want to start fixing a car if you didn't understand yeah. how it worked. Yeah. Same sort of thing as you've said. Um, and so you need to understand how that cyclone works as well as you can and what are the different ways you could intervene to really change the way that it's behaving. Yeah. What about tornadoes? Does that have any sort of similarity in terms of a similar approach to putting aerosols to try and slow down? Or, or I know like in parts of the US, you think, well, they live in Tornado Alley and a Tornado, I know for those Twister movies and that sort of thing, you think they come through all the time. They still are pretty rare, but when they come through, they cause so much damage. If we get a heads up, is something we can do in that space to slow down or change the track of the tornado? I don't know. Um, the only reason I've, I've looked into tornadoes to see whether climate change has an impact mm. on them, um, and apparently they don't think it does at the moment. So I've stopped kind of looking at them because we don't have that many here. Yeah. Um, I, I have wondered about that myself, but I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Mm. That's the one for next time. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about really turning that risk paradigm on its head about let's actually look at potentially eliminating, but we all know that at the end of the day, things are going to, going to sneak through the goalie, you know, think we're still going to be facing some disasters. Um, What's your thoughts in terms of how do we continue, like how do we take this same kind of methodology of really thinking outside of the box um, in that elimination space? How do we kind of apply apply that same methodology to kind of other risk methodologies? I know in a recent article that you were writing in the conversation, you know, talking about floating houses, you know, in some floodplains, we're never going to be able to stop flooding. Um, you know, there's some really difficult conversations with the community that, you know, there's connection there. There might be cultural connection and, and moving them might not be an option. So you go, well, we've got a problem. We've got to look at an engineering solution. But how do we think outside of the box? What have you guys been doing there or what's your thoughts in that space? Uh, yeah, so um, it's really interesting. So I was asked to um, interview at some stage last year about the floods in Pakistan. Mm. Well, and that I was did, bad. Yeah, I did think a lot about that because I think one of the big issues there was the dislocation yep. of um, people um, and the destruction of their houses. And I thought, well, could we have floating houses? Like imagine if um, all of their houses floated Mm. Like, and they stayed put, but they floated up. And so instead of being washed away by the flood, they floated up and they were all equipped with everything they needed. So if they were equipped, like with a water purifier, because obviously dirty water is a big issue during a flood, um, if they had some kind of food stored there and that sort of thing, um, and they had mosquito nets so they wouldn't get, because there's a lot of mosquitoes during a flood, um, if they had the basics that they needed um, and instead of, um, and those floods have stayed around for months, like they haven't just been come through quickly and disappeared. So those people are stuck there, stuck somewhere for months, probably um, 
if they're lucky, they've got away and they haven't drowned and they're sitting on some raised bridge somewhere in some tent. Yeah. You know, so it's pretty bad news for a lot of people. But if their house floated and they had everything they needed on that house, that would be great. And there's an organisation in the US called the Buoyant Foundation and there's also, um, I think it's the UNDP in Vietnam, there's quite a few organisations now looking at floating houses and mm-hmm. designing really low-cost floating houses um, that could work in all different kinds of floods. And that sort of thing to me is just a no-brainer. Like, we should be taking that so seriously because we cannot stop the floods. Like, yeah. those floods in Pakistan, they're massive. We could reduce them. We could look at nature-based solutions. We could look at strengthening the dams that they have. We could look at making sure that any new infrastructure that was built was built to a very high standard, um, thinking about the worst-case scenario for climate change. But in the end, once you get those big sorts of floods, you've got to... Um, help the people survive and to me one of the most logical ways to do that is have houses that float so yeah (laughs) and it makes sense and I think like one of the big things that Andrew and I want people to take out of this episode and also other episodes people may have heard we've had James Davidson on um, and you know more looking at how do you make flood resilient infrastructure like how can we have a property that you know is something that we can just wash out and we move back in within a day you know I think one of the big things Andrew I want to take away is that there are actually a lot of solutions out there I think people like the notion of disasters and what's facing us can become overwhelming. Yeah. But for me, Rosa, I don't know if you agree, but I think there are a lot of solutions and there are a lot of things on the horizon to actually look towards to actually mitigate and, and work with. Yeah, I think so. I have to say I do think that there are some situations, particularly with flooding, um, where the best thing to do is just get the people mm. out of the floodplain. Yeah. I just think James would agree as well. We've had this discussion. Yeah. Um, actually, James is working looking at floating houses in Australia um, for um, an old people's um, sort of residence, which is near a river. Yeah. Yeah, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens with that. But um, – Yeah, I think um, there are solutions. And what really concerns me is that we're not thinking about these kind of transformational Mm. solutions. We're just thinking about, well, we can't do anything about this. It's a natural hazard. And the only way to stop turning it into a disaster is to, you know, build stronger houses or whatever. But in fact, in some cases, the best thing to do would be to stop the natural hazard happening in the first place. And we need to be thinking about that very seriously. And we understand so much more now about the weather and how it works than we did and the climate and how it works than we did, say, 20 years ago. So we should be able to use our expertise in different disciplines to think really hard together um, to do this. So, I mean, I've been wanting to have these, and I've got one now, I think, these innovation hubs um, where we, you know, not there's just not one person that's going to solve these yeah. problems. You need people from all different disciplines, all different walks of life. And I've got this great group of kids at the moment. So, um, you know, we are talking about the bushfires earlier and saying um, – We've got to detect them within a minute, but how are we going to put them out? How are we going to get something to that remote location in the bushland within five minutes to put this fire out? And so um, Andrew Trujillo, who developed the... um, the Scout drones has also developed these water gliders, which um, essentially drop out of a C-130 and water would drop onto the fire from these um, from these things as they open with a parachute. Um, they're like water gliders, and that's one good idea, but I think we just can't have one idea. It's a bit like mm. the detection. You need a few ideas. So I've got six honours engineering students 
working together for a whole year with people from the people that make um, design bombs in defence and some people from Raytheon, um, from the company Raytheon, that also des- design bomb designers, yeah. um, working with um, other engineers and meeting a lot with people from the fire service to look at, well, how would we design something that could actually extinguish those fires within five minutes after detection? What would that look like? How can bomb design help us? How can what we understand already about fires help us? Like bringing, you know, students have really got brilliant ideas in their mind. They're really keen to solve problems. They've got that, you know, fully, they're all honours degree students, so they know a lot already. But then if they bring that expertise of people from different areas to this, we could maybe invent something new that would really make a difference. Mm. So what happens next? You've got all these different ideas, some from the extremely far out there, some might call crazy, but also very interesting and innovative. Um, How do you take these to market? Like what happens next? Is this the ANU sort of build these up and takes them to government? I guess you whittle down from all the different ideas you've got into something that can be commercially viable. What's next for for some of these ideas? So um, with the bushfire one, we're working in partnership with the ACT Rural Fire Service um, and so, uh, and obviously Optus. So hopefully through through that, um, once we've got the proof of concept working, um, we can take it. We've got the right partners there to take it forward. Um, with the cyclone work, it's probably a bit early mm. to um, to say. I guess my main concern is that these ideas, you know, we're really struggling to get them take people to take notice of them. Yeah. So people just tend to think very incrementally, you know, so how can we build a better fire truck? How can we build more cyclone-resistant houses? They're the kind of focuses that people have. But what um, I think we need to do is think much more transformationally, but we're not getting much traction with this. And so why is it that Optus and ANU are funding a solution for one of the biggest threats to Australia, which is these crazy catastrophic bushfires, you know? Why is it that ANU is funding this work in cyclone prevention? You know, this is a huge issue for the whole country. Why isn't the government funding this sort of work? You know, they tend to, it doesn't matter where you look, everyone funds the incremental, even the Australian Research Council, you know, I hear researchers complain all the time if they have a different idea that's new, it doesn't get supported, what gets funded is the incremental solution. And we're just beyond incremental now, you know, Mm. we really are. So we need to think big picture then. These ideas, it sounds like they are possible. It sounds, I mean, I couldn't believe China has 35,000 people working in weather manipulation is, is pretty insane. I guess if it works somewhere, we need to consider it in other places as well maybe. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to get across is that, you know, we're maybe behind the eight ball here because we have real problems with our climate and our weather as well. Um, we need to be thinking about how we can carefully target um, interventions that are going to help and not have bad side effects. Rosalind, I think, what you know, we're talking about cyclones, we're talking about bushfires and something that's probably not, you know, front of mind for Australia, but we do actually have a real risk is earthquakes. Um, you know, it's something that uh, many people or, or some people, it's, it's some quite time ago now, you know, the Newcastle earthquakes, but it's definitely a risk that we have in Australia. You know, we've talked about mitigating cyclones, talked about mitigating bushfires. What does that lens now look like over an earthquake situation? Mm-hmm. I wish we could stop earthquakes. <laughs> Every time I see one, it's so depressing. What's the crazy idea for earthquakes? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got one that's going to stop them. 
But wouldn't it be helpful if we could give people more warning so that mm. at least people did have more time to move to safer places? Yeah. So, um, you know, so that critical operations like surgery could be suspended and high-speed trains halted and electrical power stations and gas mains protected. So, um, yeah, I think the main thing with earthquakes is to work out how we can predict them earlier. And what's exciting here is you've probably heard of gravitational waves mm. um, that were recently um, identified. So... Um, the, a guy called Bram Slag, Slagmelin um, in our physics school um, with someone else called Phil Cummins are looking at these sensors that can detect earthquakes and tsunamis actually much earlier than current disaster early warning systems and that's through gravitational waves. And so um, preliminary modelling that they've done suggests that gravitational forces from seismic pressure waves due to earthquakes can be measured by these high-precision gravitational force sensors and these measurements could alert seismologists to the changes in the gravity field before the tremors from the earthquake are even registered by the current seismometer networks currently used Mm. for early warnings. And so um, that is the sort of um, thing that I think we should be really focusing on now any way we can to predict earthquakes before. Because there really is none at the moment, is there? Like once you sort of get that first tremor, that's the first sign. There's no other way of getting wow. So we really are kind of not progressed far in that path of research yeah. into into earthquakes. Yeah, it's really hard. Mm. I mean, Turkey, like look what they had, oh. and they had that initial, I think, shock in the morning about three a.m. Everyone's in their homes, and the big one happened about one, I think, in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon. Everyone's out and about doing things. But imagine if you could, could have, yeah, get that warning ahead of time, and it would change the game on that for sure. It would. I really think it's something we should be doing. Again, um, you know, poor old Bram and Phil have applied for funding from the Australian Research Council and maybe it's just not enough for them to, you know, stop all the damage from these earthquakes, but... um that they didn't get funding. So. Well, that, and, and I mean, that's something that we, you know, we've witnessed firsthand in Japan when we were over there only a couple of months ago, like seeing the devastation there from obviously that earthquake that triggered the tsunami oh, yeah. was off offshore. But again, um, you know, quite often we see the interaction between earthquakes and tsunamis. But oh, imagine yeah. if you got that early warning from the earthquake, which is then the precursor for the tsunami, if you give yourself extra warning time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So with the tsunamis, um, I think, um, we, you know, we're talking a really long um, additional amount of um, prediction that you'd get for the tsunami from these gravitational waves. Like yep. you could hit, get a huge head start. We wouldn't have had anything like as many of people killed if we'd had these technologies working, I reckon. Yeah, that would be a game changer. Yeah, it would be a game changer. So with all these ideas, and, and this is like a rule, and there's lots of game changers here we've talked about today that are really going to change the world based on what we've done, unfortunately, to impact the weather on climate change. What is next for climate change? I mean, Josh and I try and we drive our electric cars. We try and be as, as good as we can be, but you can't change the world. We're still buying stuff and, and making an impact. What is next for climate change and what can we do to, to right, try and mitigate the impact of that? Yeah, well, the funny thing is that, you you know, Frank and Mark, who are my colleagues here, Frank in energy and Mark in climate, um, Frank Yotso and Mark Howden keep saying, you know, we have all the technologies we need to actually fix the energy transition issues, um, but we're just not implementing them fast enough. And so what we really need to do is put our minds to it. You know, it's like I said before, if you put your mind to going to the moon, you'll go to the moon. If you put your your mind to actually, for instance, stopping all the subsidies that we have on fossil fuels in this country and stopping opening up coal mines and stopping opening up gas. Well, if you put your mind to stopping doing that, then you'll stop it. Mm. And, you know, I believe that 
particularly um, our young people um, in this country and people who have children in this country would be prepared to suffer a little bit while that transition's going on if they could see that it would save the planet. And so that's the first thing, um, just putting your mind to it and making it happen and stop giving in to the things we know we shouldn't be giving in to because we know they're making things worse, like additional fossil fuels. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is um, whatever we do, there's always going to be all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we need to really fast-track new technologies for negative emissions, so for taking that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that's there already, um, and that's something I think we're not putting enough effort into, a bit like stopping disasters. It's going to be a crucial f- way of stopping climate change. Mm. And then third of all, of course, there's the geoengineering solutions, and to be honest, I think we need to look at them very seriously, otherwise we're not going to have a planet the way we're going. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. In terms of that, just... And last question to wrap this up, it's been a fascinating discussion, is that, you, you know, you talked about more minds. We need minds on problems to get solutions. Like, really, end of the day, it's as simple as that. Um, and what and people know that Andrew and I are extremely passionate through this podcast about getting the word out there and trying to get people to understand that you might, you're not, you might not work in disasters, but you might work in an industry that intersects with disasters and you need to know about them and you actually have a lever to change the world we all work in. For you, what, you know, we always like to ask I guess how did you get into this space? Like Andrew and I were two engineers that fell into this space, and yeah. now we love it, and it's our and it's our life mission now. But for you, Rosalind, how did you end up in this space? To be honest, um, I ended up in this space because of the bushfires. Mm. I just thought we are just not taking this seriously enough. I've been working in climate change for a very long time for most of my career. I've been working at uh, in um, farm forestry and different ways that we might look at um, sequestering carbon and. Um, addressing environmental issues for most of my career. I've been working in building human capacity so that they can actually solve these problems um, while I was in the chief scientist's office. Look, I've been working um, in a lot of these areas and I just looked around me and I thought, we've just not got this right at all. Mm. I need to take this on. So I think that's how I got into it, Um, you know, seeing that people aren't taking climate change seriously enough, we're not acting fast enough and we're getting dramatic increases in the intensity and the occurrence of these disasters and we need to do something different. Definitely. Well, climate change isn't new to us in this show. We're certainly hearing a lot of new ideas today around how we can actually mitigate the impacts of disasters, which have been fascinating. So Rosalind Princely, we'll put more on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. And if you're not a subscriber, jump on there and check it out. And where can people find out more about ANU and the Australia's leading research or world-leading research that you're up to? Um, probably um, on our website or contact me. So um, we have um, the Institute of Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions has a website within the ANU website that you can look on and for some of the newer things just give me a call I'd love to talk to you about it if you've got some ideas Rosalind Princely thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster Thank you very much it's been a great pleasure speaking with you both Thank you Rosalind Thank you That's all we have time for on the show today Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters We'll catch you then Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.